with one voice and consent of tongue and heart, publish and proclaim that the Prince Charles Philip Arthur George is now, by the death of our late sovereign of happy memory, become our only lawful and rightful liege lord. This will is not only unpleasant, it's also dangerous. Those who like beer, and surprisingly it's still legal to like it. South Australia joins all other states in abandoning the six o'clock swill. You're tuned to the swill, the podcast that stands calmly and serenely above the gibber that passes for audio entertainment these days. I'm Nick Cater, taking my customary break from my day job running the country's leanest think tank. Joining me tonight is Tim Blair, blogger to the nation by royal appointment, I think. Which nation would that be? Why, the greatest nation on earth, of course, long reigned over by the world's most fabulous queen. Until yesterday, of course, when Her Majesty passed away, surrounded by her family at Balmoral. Tim, uh, I gather Elizabeth had a job on the side serving as monarch to the United Kingdom and 14 other dominions, but it's, it's in her main role as sovereign of the Commonwealth of Australia. She'll be chiefly remembered, a role she performed with near perfection, don't you think? Absolutely. I think a total of 16 visits here over more than or nearly 60 years. And I've just got in front of me, this is the editor's note. It goes out to Daily Telegraph subscribers from the editor of the Telegraph, Ben English. And he's, uh, he's presented the Queen's itinerary for her first Australian visit in 1954. She was the first living monarch. First reigning monarch, I think, then. Yeah. Just brace yourself for this. And I challenge any band or stand-up or any modern act to match this level of intensity. Right, we begin in Sydney for the 3rd to the 18th of February. Sydney detours to Newcastle on the 9th, Lismore on the 9th, Casino on the 9th and 10th, and beautiful downtown Dubbo on the 10th. Now, that's that's just mm-hmm. in the first week. Now, we've got Wollongong on the 11th of February, Bathurst the 12th of February, also Katoomba on the 12th of February, Lithgow on the 12th, Wagga Wagga on the 13th, and then Canberra for the direst time of her visit from the 13th to the 18th of February. Then she headed further south. Hobart, for the 20th to 23rd of February, Wynyard, 23rd of February, Burnie, 23rd of February, Olveston, 23rd of February, Devonport, 23rd of February, Cressy, 23rd to the 24th of February, and then Launceston, 24th of February. That's week three done. Next, Victoria and South Australia, Melbourne for the 24th of February to the 9th of March. I think my grandparents were present for her street celebrations there. Mount Gambier in South Australia, 26th of February, Hamilton, 26th of February, Flinders, the 2nd of March. Wow. Now, that's four weeks, and we've already gone through New South Wales, the ACD, Tasmania, South Australia, and Victoria. Now, mm. Sale on the 3rd of March, Taralgon on the 3rd of March, Yalorn on the 3rd of March, Warrigal on the 3rd of March, Benella on the 5th of March. Bear in mind, at this point, we're not even halfway through the tour. Then we've got Shepparton, Echuca, Rochester and Bendigo, and Castlemaine and Miraburra all on the 5th of March. And then on the next day, Ballarat, Geelong, and Warburton. Five weeks done. Let's go north. Brisbane from the 9th to the 18th of March. <laughs> Still going. Oh, yeah. She's tireless. Brisbane from the 19th to the 18th of March. Uh, with it's side exhausting trips, just to listen to. Uh, between the 11th and the 3rd, 13th to Bundaberg, Toowoomba, Cairns and Townsville. Six weeks down. Only a couple or so to go. Mackay, Rockhampton on the 15th of March. Broken Hill on the 18th of March. And then to Adelaide between the 18th and 26th of March. 
One more week. The final leg, Wyala in Port Lincoln on the 20th of March. Lovely spot. Woomera on the 22nd. Renmark on the 23rd. Mildura on the 25th. Kalgoorlie on the 26th. Perth on the 26th. It's a bit of a jump over there to Perth, or to WA. Bustleton on the 30th. Albany on the 30th. Northam on the 31st, York on the 31st, and then Fremantle on the 1st of April from where she departed for her return voyage to Britain. How great is that effort? Oh, isn't that amazing? It's the sort of thing that Slim Dusty would have sung about, isn't it? In fact, it's a Slim Dusty tour. I've been to Tullamore, Seymour, Lismore, Mulaba, Nambour, Maruchador, Kilmore, Mulaba. I could go on, but... I'd love to have a drink with Queenie. But Slim Dusty did tours like that. Slim Dusty did tours like that. He did. Of course, we are now joined here by Kel Richards, we should point out. Of course, Royal Correspondent Kel Richards. Sorry, yep. Kel, I should have introduced you. But the uh, half the nation saw her. Half the entire nation is said to have turned out to see her in person, which is quite some feat, I think, and in the era before television. And a very little Kel Richards stood in a corner in Mascot and waved at her. Yep, yep, we, she there waved, I waved at her. As she went past and she waved back, so we've had a relationship ever since. She remembers that <laughs> moment, I think, to her dying day, Kel. She spoke of little else. <laughs> well, I haven't even asked you, Kel, whether you, where you stand on the Republican monarchy question, but I just sense that the Republicans lack a sense of poetry, spirituality. There's the idea that we should have somebody like that as our head of state, as they call it, although head of state, of course, is not in the Constitution. That's just a jargon term that diplomats use. But the fact Ooh. that that should be our sovereign, to me, is quite marvellous. I could go on and on, on about it, as I will, but it's a magical kind of arrangement we came to, thanks to the British, where the Queen is has the power to pass Acts of Parliament in Australia, but only the ones which is advised to do by the Senate and the House of Representatives. In other words, she is both master and servant of the Parliament. That, in essence, is the Magna Carta, is it? Spirit of the Magna Carta. And why the best place in the world to live is in a constitutional monarchy like this. That's my thesis. You can argue if you want. No, no, no argument. We're all in favour. <laughs> You're just activating a lot of nodding heads. And you were talking about the qualities that the Republican movement miss out on. What th- this structure, this system gives is, this may, they may sound like weird words, but I think they provide a degree mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. nobility and dignity. Uh, and without them, you, you end up in a cesspit of party mm. politics and nothing but party politics. To have that bit of nobility and dignity above that is a wonderfully refreshing thing, which we have. And I wrote something about this a few weeks ago, that the quality of our political class and their achievements are not such that they've earned themselves an extra layer of political power by, for example, adding a third element of parliament with the voice or by ditching our connections to royalty and becoming a republic, which would, it would have to result in some Australian equivalent of the Queen that might not be limited to the current role of the Governor-General. It would be an additional entity. When you've got a political class that is so inept that they've turned the energy powerhouse of Australia into some place where it's got the most expensive electricity in <laughs> most of the developed world, I don't think you've really written your ticket to no. give yourself anything, anything extra. Nothing to boast about. 
I had to think about this this morning at five o'clock when I was, because I do a daily newsletter, Word of the Day, which I post on the website and I send out to people. And I had to think, how, what word do I use to talk about the passing of the Queen? The word I chose was the word anchor, because mm. I thought that's what summed up. I've just pulled it up in front of me. What we've lost. Yep. There's an anchor. She's been there for the whole of our lives. The pollies come and go, some of them good, some of them bad. A lot more bad than good, as you say, Tim. But she's been there and admirable for the whole time. The word anchor goes back to Old English, and one of the mm. first authors ever to use it was King Alfred. So it's Absolutely. clearly an appropriate royal word, isn't it? And very soon after the literal use, you know, a device to keep a ship safely anchored to the seabed, very quickly after that, just a few years after that, it started to be used mm. metaphorically to mean, quote, this is from the Oxford, quote, a person or thing which provides stability, support or confidence, especially perfect, in otherwise John. uncertain times. Now, what the Oxford... Yeah, that, that, and that's what we've had. We've had uncertain times and we've had that anchor. And she had her own anchor, which was her Christian faith, which she never hid, spoke about often, especially in her Christmas broadcasts. But the world is feeling very strange, I think, at the moment. Very strange. Well, um, Kel, of the Queen's detractors... Online, I would use a word that rhymes with anchor. <laughs> I've got to get the beep ready, I suppose, Jim. <laughs> Actually, you might need it later on, although I'll be careful. The Queen was mostly condemned on in, in woke quarters because of, you know, she represents a terrible force of colonising evil. Senator Maureen Faruqi of the Greens, of course, wrote this morning that, I, that she cannot mourn the leader of a racist empire built on stolen lives, land and the wealth of colonised peoples. Good for her. Anyway, while all this, all these attacks on colonialism are occurring, the New York Times found someone who took an altogether different avenue of attack. They found a Harvard University history professor called Maya Jasanoff, who wrote a 1,500-word piece. I think it's, it's a, it, it doesn't end quickly, but I'll, I'll give you just a couple of paragraphs. The Queen wrote Maya Jasanov, was the face of a nation that during the course of her reign witnessed the dissolution of nearly the entire British Empire into some 50 independent states and significantly reduced global influence. Now you'd imagine, Kel and Nick, that reducing the global influence of the British Empire and dissolving it into 50 independent states would be a very good thing. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. The work should applaud. It's correcting the great colonial wickedness and evil. But oh no, oh no, 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 because she then continued, and I don't, you might have to explain this all to me. The Queen's presence as head of state and head of the Commonwealth, an association of Britain and its former colonies, put a stolid traditionalist front over decades of violent upheaval. As such, the Queen helped obscure a bloody history of decolonisation whose proportions and legacies have yet to be adequately acknowledged. There's a touch of the, the old uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't there, isn't there, Colin? It is. Am I reading this correctly? The bloodiness and atrocities happened after decolonisation, in my reading of the word. It was the decision of Britain to withdraw from fault? India, for instance. Which it's her fault for A, colonising and B, decolonising. She's history's greatest monster. If they hadn't decolonised the Solomon Islands, we wouldn't be stuck with Sogavare. Her fault, absolutely. <laughs> 
I blame the Queen for all the wrongs. Oh, it's... And don't really get it nor appreciate, do they? Somebody tweeted, and I'm not sure whether this is a joke, Joe Biden sends his condolences to the British people for the tragic loss of Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> but look, this is the Queen. This is the very same Queen that after who after 9-11 personally stepped in to order the royal bands to play the mm. American national anthem at the changing of the guard. She yes. And yep. yep. did. No bad feelings on her part for their presumptuous act in becoming independent back in, was that, 1780-something. Um, that she was quite... I mean, we came to terms with that. Paul Keating, though, she interestingly... She, go on, she did die in Balmoral. The very spot where, just 29 years earlier, Paul Keating had met her in the drawing room that he, he writes about. Mm, to warn her, just thought he'd break it to her gently that Australia was going to be a republic. He told her, he said, that the monarchy had drifted into obsolescence, that Australia would inevitably become a republic, that the nation had changed since she first visited in 1954, the white Australia policy had been abandoned, and it would be harder for the country to find its place in Asia if it was uncertain about its own identity. The Queen sat resolutely through what Keating imagined had been a difficult conversation, before offering the Prime Minister a glass of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> she clearly thought he needed it. It's interesting that they somehow need to take offence at the fact that she was nice, she was likeable, she was mm. pleasant. How do you do that? I Last night, Thursday night, I was on the air with John Stanley on 2GB and John was telling me that he told me off air that he met her and talked to her when he was in the parliamentary press gallery at a meet and greet in the Great Hall. And he said, you're not supposed to say anything. But John is a racehorse obsessive and knows all about horse racing, a part mm-hmm. owner of a racehorse, and knew the names of her horses. So when, when she came and shook the hand, he started talking about her racehorses. He said her face lit up. She was really delighted. He was someone interested in what she was interested in and actually knew something about it. She was just a very nice, likeable person. How dare she? How yeah. you twist that to take offence at that is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It is extraordinary. Now, Meghan Markle managed it, but anyway, go on. Yeah, no, <laughs> I've been collecting for a piece in the next edition of Quadrant some of the worst initial responses to the Queen's passing. And uh, there's a few obvious candidates, but I think the winner is a professor at Carnegie Mellon University called Uju Anya. Now... She wins on two counts. One, content, which we'll get to shortly, but secondly, because she didn't just write in the immediate wake of the Queen's death. She got in a few hours before, which I think shows an inventive sort of approach. This is what she wrote on Twitter. It's since been removed, by the way, from Twitter. By Twitter. Uh, Okay. She wrote, I heard the chief monarch of a thieving, raping, genocidal empire is finally dying. May her pain be excruciating. But then she had second thoughts. She had second thoughts. And those thoughts were, I just haven't gone in hard enough. (laughs) So she wrote this. She added this. That wretched woman and her bloodthirsty throne have effed generations of my ancestors on both sides of the family. And she supervised a government that sponsored the genocide my parents and siblings survived. Bit of a definition error there if they survived. We don't have a genocide. May she die in agony. Okay, now, you've got to wonder, by the way, Carnegie Mellon University, I think in Australian terms that's about 86 grand per term, per student. 
or per year rather per student. So you can imagine what a professor is on yeah, at that joint. Yeah. I don't think Ujuanya is among history's more oppressed individuals. Now, Kelly, you're going you're to have to help me through this because there's some words in her job description that I didn't recognise and I don't understand. Right. So if you can just apply your word brain to this description of her work as a professor and researcher. Apply your work brain to the job description of a bird brain. <laughs> She's a professor and researcher in applied linguistics, critical sociolinguistics, and critical discourse studies primarily examining race, gender, sexual and social class identities in new language learning through the experiences of African-American students. Her other areas of inquiry include applied linguistics as a practice of social justice and, brace yourself, translanguaging in world language pedagogy. I think I've pronounced those words right. Translanguaging. Translanguaging. Is that a new one to you, Kel? Because I've never run across that particular pile of crap before. Not only is it new to me, that is new to the Oxford English Dictionary. So, <clears throat> It's a verb, right? I was doing a bit of translanguaging yesterday and I cut my foot. Like, what does it mean? Well, I think it's probably what people who, have the, who, who take the hormones and have the surgery do. They do a lot of translanguaging, don't they? Is that just, cha- is just changing pronouns, translanguaging? It sounds more complicated than that. Yeah, no idea what it means. She, if she probably means something like translating. That's probably what she means. And when you're talking about social justice, uh, applied linguistics and social justice, what she means is doing what the woke want to do, which is to try to teach the rest of us to talk properly. I... Oh, so translanguaging could be where you convert... Yes, that's right. ...words and phrases we understand into impenetrable woke speak. I've had a couple of people recently say, look, most Australians don't understand woke. What does the word mean? And I've explained the history so many times, but I've decided I've got to give them a really simple three-word definition of woke. And woke is authoritarian Mm. political correctness. And I think that's her Mm. topic. Oh, that's a good point. Authoritarian political correctness. So where political correctness used to be a joke... It's now become a bully, and they are authoritarian political correctness. That's what works. So I'm using that three-word definition to try to help people to understand where it is now. That's what I think it is, and that's what I think she's doing. That's actually very, very astute. That's very clever and astute and useful, because I think a lot of people have the sense that wokeness is a kind of militarised or weaponised version of political correctness. But... See how many words I do use to get there, and you've done it in three, Kel. So that's yeah, that's very helpful. It is the woke is is a philosophy in which everything becomes politicised. Even we learnt this week, as you could see at the midwinter ball, the, the woman's ball gown is now also politicised. It has to have slope with used to just a plain, straightforward, black, blue, whatever. It now it has to have. Uh, quotes from Guardian editorials written all over it, like no to coal. And the Queen, fortunately, died too late to become the subject of one of those dresses, but no doubt she will do next time. But I think the point, you're, the point here, Kelly, is that, isn't the point here that these activists, these Republicans, including many in this country, they just assume that people care about this as much as they do, but of course they don't. And then... They had that enormously frustrating experience in 1999 when we were so certain, or they were so certain that we were going to throw the Queen out and 
because 90 or 55 percent of people rejected that as a substantial majority but they're still going of course and now we have a Anthony Albanese is not content with one constitutional change a voice to Aboriginal voice to parliament is already lining up the second he's appointed a minister assistant minister of the republic who last weekend announced that he was planning an education campaign Uh-oh. that's his words not mine it's rather frightening isn't it first of all that he says that australians should be taught that quote the queen of england is our head of state wrong matt which is not uh, the, the constitution Ooh does not include the words Queen of England, indeed King or Queen at all. It, we talk about the Crown, of course. Nor is there actually a Queen of England, uh, even until the sad death of Her Majesty. She was, of course, Queen of the United Kingdom. I, my, my advice to Matt this way, if you're going to change the Constitution, first learn what it actually says. Can I just offer the... David Flint keeps saying to me, every time I bump into him, he says that... The High Court of Australia in the early, very early after the Federation, 19 something or other, 1910, very early, actually ruled that the Governor General is the head of state. And we saw that, in fact, the Governor General is the head of state at the dismissal. And the release of the palace letters kept showing us that this was John Kerr, an Australian citizen born and bred in Australia, acting as a head of state on his own without the palace. So when I was the Guardian who said, headline one of their stories, Australia has a new head of state, and I thought, what's happened to the Governor-General? This is terrible. It is simply nonsense to, to refer to the Queen as the head of state. I think David Flint is right about that. I think he's spot on. But By the way, I have seen a, a leaked copy of what the referendum will be when they ask us to vote on that, and it is removing any connection with the British monarchy and requiring the entire population to wear red bandanas. That's what it will say. (laughs) Kel, that's a good point. This point about whether the Governor-General is actually technically the head of state is one of those sort of theological details that Republicans... Mm. Uh, argue about amongst themselves, a bit like medieval monks arguing how many (laughs) angels you'd get on the head of a pin. But the broad point is right. We don't need to scrap the Governor-General to get an Australian head of state. If he's head of state, David Hurley was born in Wollongong, the son of Mm -hmm. an Illawarra steel worker. He spent 40 years serving his country in the army at the very highest level. And indeed, 11 of the 12 Governor-Generals since Thistlewaite was born in 1971, were Australian. How much more Australian? What do you have to do? do you want him, does he want them to go around in, I don't know, corked hats or something just to prove they're Australian? It's just... A wobble board? Perhaps, yes. Thongs? One of the worries of their push is, if you read the Uluru Statement of the Heart, I've written about this in the new issue of The Spectator, which is out, the one that's out today, the word sovereign keeps turning up. And there is a claim that the Aboriginal people are sovereign over the continent of Australia and its adjacent islands. They've never ceded this sovereignty. It's a sacred spiritual sovereignty. It can't be taken away. And, and at some point they say they have co-sovereignty with the Crown. Now, if, if the, the Republicans get their way and the Crown is gone, there is no one in Australia to have sovereignty over the nation except the Aboriginal people. So the other 97% of us will just have to acknowledge that 3% of them have sovereignty over the entire place. I actually think the whole sovereignty question is worth mentioning 
in the voice debate, because that's what it is. It's a claim of territorial authority made by one racial group of people over the entire country so that the rest of us, the other 25 million, don't have any territorial authority over our country. And getting rid of the Crown makes that worse. That's right. I mean, what is the proposal for the new Australian head of state, which is sort of the word they use because they don't want to say the P word, president, is the president going to be sovereign over Australia? It seems rather odd, because presidents have, of course, fallen out of favour almost everywhere in the world, including in the United States, where I can confidently say that 100% of Americans think that sometimes presidents can be in very flawed characters, if not totally evil, based on just the last two presidents alone. One, one frequent argument, by the way, that the Republican movement use is that it's terribly unfair that no Australian child can be our head of state, which they define as the reigning monarch. Mm. And they think this is a terrible thing. Little Australian kid aspiring to be the head of state can't be. And so they want to offer this child, this hypothetical child, the opportunity to become the equivalent of a governor general. Now, I've never met any Australian child <laughs> whose lifelong ambition it is to become the Governor-General. And if I did meet that child, I think I'd be doing the world a favour if I put that child down a well. Like, next time I talk to my little four-year-old grandson, I'll say, what's your ambition when you grow up, Edric? And I think it's still to be a train driver, not to be the Governor-General. <laughs> I think the train drivers, from what I'm reading in recent weeks, they earn more money than the Governor-General. <laughs> and have longer holidays. I think you're starting off on a base salary of about 120 grand. I think the kid's got... He's got a good head on his shoulders. Homes, he's got an eye yeah. on the future. Well, I think his line of reasoning is slightly different. It's just to do with playing with bigger toys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they think we care about this, whereas I think and it, what this week has proved is that uh, on the last day, 24 hours has proved, is that it's not going to be the cakewalk they thought it is, just because the Queen's passed away. In fact, it's going to be harder. I mean, what happened? We woke up on Friday morning to discover that overnight, our allegiance had changed peacefully and instantaneously from Queen Elizabeth II to Charles III. That's what it is. It continues. And I think most people would have thought, oh, well, so what? Australia goes on as it does, and as we frequently remind our political class, most people are much more concerned about mortgage rates, price of petrol, yes. and all these other annoyances than they are about <laughs> some technical argument over the head of state. Now, it is intriguing, isn't it? They assume, sorry, Kel, these people assume that uh, their obsessions are broadly shared, don't they? They assume that because they're obsessed with heads of state or referenda or whatever that everyone else is like it. And I would liken that to, say, Kel wandering to a room full of 100 strangers and yelling out, isn't it fascinating? Everyone thinks that this certain word has French origins and it's actually Portuguese. And expecting everyone to rise up in acclamation and uh, be fascinated because that's Kel's special Tim has interest. been in a room I've walked into, haven't you, Tim? You've been in a room I've walked into. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be like me going to a room this weekend and saying, my God, everybody, wasn't that a spectacular second practice session at the Italian Grand Prix at Monza and expecting everyone to join in the conversation? They don't yes. care. Yeah. 
I think you alluded to the New York Times editorial earlier. Yes, the one from our... It's worth reading the detail. It's quite extraordinary. We may never learn what the Queen did or did not know about the crimes committed in her name. Her subjects haven't necessarily got the full story either. It goes and then calls on the ending of the, the term empire in all its contexts awards of empire, rename the order of the British Empire, etc., etc. What a dreadful, dreadful country this is. One, one reader tweeted afterwards in a tweet noted that this editorial is scoriating the British mm. Empire, scoriating the Queen and her country, was in noted contrast to the editorial just a couple of days before in praise of Mikhail Gorbachev. They do have a problem, don't they? They really have a thing about the Brits and the, indeed their own system. The New York Times editorial goes on to talk about the patriotic myth that Britain alone saved the world from fascism in World War Two. Hello, Battle of Britain, 1941. Yes, yep. mm-hmm. to, to, until the Americans entered the war belatedly with, the, with Pearl Harbor. Britain really did, and the facts are on the table. Britain was the only country in Europe which was holding out against the Germans at that point. They were just waiting for American reinforcements at that yeah, point. Churchill did make the point about how late they arrived. He didn't say it during the war because he wanted them to join the fight. But it's in, I'm sure it's in the, his mm. history of the Second World War that I read it where he made, makes a fairly scathing comment on how late they turned up for the battle. Yeah, that's right, as they did. Yes, that battle, the battle could well have been yes. over before they turned up. I don't think a lot of people are aware of how, what a close-run thing it was the first three years mm. of the mm. Second World War. Yes, yep, yep. So Her Majesty, I think, the Queen epitomised that era, didn't she? Yep. Is it possible to have a counter-movement against the decolonialisation thing, which is just stupid? I'm becoming more and more irritated. When the British arrived here, they did things like bringing a written language, which didn't exist. They brought a wheel, which didn't yep. exist. They brought metalwork, which didn't exist. Helpful things. Education. Medicine. The idea that it's a totally black story is really, really starting to irritate mm. me. It makes my fingernails... Well, you're dead right, Kel. So the woman who presided over all of this presided over something which left good things behind. You're dead right. And possibly the best thing they gave us was the constitutional monarchy. Yes, yes. Which is the best form of government, as we noticed before, that's yet been devised by none. That, of course, came from the Brits came from colonisation. Robert Menzies made the point that even though an unelected head of state or an unelected sovereign sounds like it's a sort of tyranny, in reality, the function of the constitutional monarchy is to save us from tyranny, to prevent the politicians getting ahead of themselves. Menzies, of course, he was a great monarchist, as he famously remembered as a great monarchist. Close to his death, he said, the present queen who's the most remarkable monarch since the first Elizabeth, has done so much to strengthen the position of the crown and to inspire general respect that I'm constantly horrified to find that some alleged intellectuals in Australia want to have a republic. I hope they fail dismally, he said. They have. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, always wise. One of the more sneering lines you get from the Republicans is that they're very dismissive of people who say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But I don't think they're aware of how rare in 
the planet's history has it been for circumstances that aren't broke. We're fortunate enough to be in a situation where yep. things ain't broke and to meddle with them would be damaging. Although, I think, Kel, your dream of a counter-movement to this anti-colonial stuff, the, uh, the omens aren't great, at least recent history. This is only a day or so ago in um, news.com.au. An independent Australian brewery's decision to change its name after a years-long racism row has divided customers and commentators. CB, CB Co. Brewing, formerly Colonial Brewing, <laughs> announced it was changing its name on Tuesday after years of activists' cl- activists claims it glorifies and glamorises the colonial process. Oh, <laughs> I love no. That. Yes, we're rebranding after extensive consultation with all of our key stakeholders, our customers and our employees, the brewery's managing director, Lawrence Dowd, said. So I'm sticking with yeah. Coopers. I know that surely they can't criticise Coopers. Is there something... Kel, come on, you're the wordsmith. Yeah, they might find there's some history of violent oppression against the makers yes, of casks. Yes. Coopers were also wheelwrights, and anyone who shaped timber was called a cooper back in those days. So I'm sure they shaped it into yeah. evil things on some occasions. But the thing that I think they are going to run into is they've made the assumption all the way along Charles is not a popular person. As soon as he gets on the throne, bang, mm. everyone will come our way and, it, and a republic will fall into our lap. And I think they're going to be really seriously mistaken. I think King Charles III is going to cruise along mm. quite comfortably doing the role that we want done by someone. That, and you talked about the Constitution, Nick. The point is it stops any one group of having too much power. That's almost the underlying concept mm. of the whole mm. thing, of trial by jury and a assumption of uh, the presumption of innocence. And that's what having mm. someone who is not an elected official in a, a role somewhere... In fact, it's even arguably what Sir John Kerr did stopping someone exercising too much power. Yeah. And we've seen in the COVID madness that they're desperate to exercise too much power if they can possibly get away with it. It's a dream. And I, but I don't think Charles will deliver what they think he will deliver. Well, he can't, Cal. Because, he can't because of the point about that you make is that the constitutional monarchy is a system which stops anybody having too much power, including the yes. monarch themselves. Yep. Yep. So. Mm. Charles can go on all he wants about talking to plants and wishing for whatever, but he can't do a damn thing about it. He can't. He's not. He does not have the power to to pass a talking to plants act in Australia or in Britain, for that matter. No, I think, unlike Joe Biden, who can do enormous damage. There's a difference. He is a talking plant. (laughs) (laughs) It's a crucial distinction. But I think Kel's right to observe that the Republican movement would far prefer a republic to fall into their lap than to work for it because they know when they work for it, it exposes them as egomaniacs or mm. tone-deaf lunatics who can't read the mood at all. And I think, again, Kel's right that they were looking very much forward to the ascension to the throne of King Charles because he's a bit of a dork, he's got the big jughead ears and he's, he's on record doing crazy things with... He's uh, been recorded saying stupid things back in the old... back in the Diana days when he was consorting with his now consort. And there's a lot of stuff about him. A lot of people find a bit wrong. But... They hope it'll hasten, hasten the rise of the first president, President Peter Fitzsimons. <laughs> but I think what a lot of people haven't considered is that after 70 years of Queen Elizabeth II, the novelty alone of King Charles might 
see a bit of an upswing in support for the monarchy. This is a, a situation, it's very new to all of us, and we don't know how it's going to play out yet, but the sheer novelty of it might be a factor. You mean he'll have a honeymoon like Anthony Albanese? Mm. Yes, maybe. The second thing that might play into it, which is, I don't think Charles is as stupid as they think he is. There's a, you know how they're running all the clips, all the compilations of bits from the royals, and they're yep. doing it all day. And there's a lovely clip of Charles, not that old, because he's looking very old in the shot, so it's a fairly mm. recent one. And the interviewer asked him about his activism on things like the environment and that sort of thing, mm. and said, now, when you're a monarch, will you be, keep doing that? And he said, I'm not that stupid. And I thought, that's a really <laughs> blunt statement. It's different being the heir and being the yeah. monarch. I'm not that stupid. And yeah. I think they're going to be surprised mm-hmm. that he's going to play the role of the constitutional monarch properly. Good call. Uh, either way, I think even given advances in modern science, he will not reign for nearly as long as the Queen. He's, what, 73 now? Born the 14th of November 1948, 73, with the best will in the world and even with those sort of wonderful genes he seems to have inherited 25, 30 years at most, which means probably we, all three of us, will get to see Prince William ascend to the throne. King Billy. In all likelihood. But I'm with you, Kel. I think we should just go. You've talked me into it. We will set up a movement on the swill to oppose decolonisation. It will be called the movement for recolonisation. I think with that New York Times opinion piece, which argues against decolonisation, I think we're duty-bound. If we want to avoid bloodshed, we've got to re-establish a strong colonial structure over all the Queen's former yep, dominions. Yep. This is an act of mercy. We should recolonise all the countries that have been decolonised in reverse order. So starting with America first. The United States of America will be our first recolonisation project. What do you say? <laughs> we can play the linguistic games that mm. the woke play and say that the, what we want is we want to change our states back to being called colonies. So we yes. belong to the colony of New South Wales or the colony of yes. Queensland in order to say we are proud of our, our heritage. This project of recolonisation, I think Australia will have a major role to play given really to come to the aid, to bring stability and some degree of prosperity back to the many failed states close to our shores, starting with New Zealand, I guess. That would be our first target, wouldn't oh. it? The most oh, yes. state yes. going down the tube quite quickly. Seriously beyond hope, I would have thought. Tim, if you excuse me, I might just test Kel on something. And Kel, we're looking, we're looking at you on on computer cam, so we can tell if you're just cheating by looking down at your keyboard and looking us up. <laughs> the phrase, "the king is dead, long live the king," or yeah. multi-gendered variations, "the queen is dead, long live the king." The origins of that. Uh- Perhaps I can give you a coup. Le roi est mort, vive le roi. All I can tell you is that it's older than Shakespeare. When Shakespeare was using it, he didn't coin it. All I can tell you with any confidence is it's extremely old. According to my extensive studies at the University of Wikipedia, it is it was declared on the ascension to the French throne of Charles VII after the death of his father, Charles VI, in 1422 in France. Oh. So you'd have thought that we'd get a a phrase that is now essentially the official proclamation of to mark the passing of monarch. Who'd have guessed that we would have got that from the French? I guess it was in happier times for the French monarchy, though. Yeah, the yeah. French have very little use for that phrase now. 
Bear in mind, in 1400, French was still an official language in England. England was bilingual. After 1066, the Normans Uh came in, and those idiots only spoke French. So uh, all of the upper classes, all of the laws, all of the official language was in (laughs) French for a long time, until finally Chaucer and people like that showed them, hey, this Anglo-Saxon language is pretty good. You can do good stuff in this as well. And the two lived side by side for some time, which is Mm. why we have so many French source words in our language, all of which we mispronounce, but that's fine. We're allowed to do that. And I would think Mm. about that time, there was still a, a very strong French linguistic influence. Yeah, and it gets, it gets a richness to the English language, isn't it? It's a real comfort to con- carnivores of a sensitive disposition because we don't eat sheep, we eat yes. mutton from mm. French mutton. We don't eat cows, those lovely animals. We eat beef, all from the French. It's given us alternative words for the animals that allow us to have... Be, make it, make, that's why perhaps why the English have got a reputation of being kind for animals, even though they do eat them. Kel, I don't have the yep. list in front of me. But I have I've read through it. It's a very helpful list of English town and village and landmark you know, river names and so on. And it's a guide to telling the source yep, yep. of those words, be it French, Roman, Norman, so on. It's intriguing, though. But mentioning the, the French influence on our language through English, was there, like, obviously there's Roman as well, I guess even though that sometime predates, obviously, the French. We have lots of got very strong Germanic influence because the Anglo-Saxon language was a Germanic language to begin with. Mm. But the truth is, English has borrowed mm-hmm. words from every language on the planet. I once made the observation that English doesn't so much borrow words as follow other languages down dark alleys, beat them senseless, and steal any linguistic items they have about them. <laughs> if you call a small boat a dinghy, you're speaking like an Indian because it's a Hindi word. Yep. If you wear pyjamas when you go to bed, okay. that's a Hindi word. Our language is just packed full of words from just about every language on earth. And that's what... You might say it's inclusive, Kel. <laughs> it's an inclusive language. Appropriative. It's culturally appropriative language. A lot of there is a lot of Hindi in there, isn't it? Surprising amount of yes. Hindi alongside the French, the German, Latin, Spanish, whatever. Rooty Hill in Sydney references Indian bread. Seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because a lot of the New South Wales core had served in India, so yeah, it's all over the place. And we love that about the English language. That is wonderful. We will steal from anyone. I happened upon Kel a scene. It was a cricket match being played in the West Indies. It might have been in Jamaica. And there was a vendor, and he had a box strapped around his neck, and he was just walking around selling products from this container. And written on the front, promoting his product, was a little sign that said, Bunny, it said, sorry, Bunny Chow. (laughs) I thought, and naturally being Australian, I thought, this is some sort of rabbit deal. They're selling rabbit meat. Like, great. I would buy anything called bunny chow. But oh no, it's again an Indian-derived word. Indian workers who were brought to Jamaica to work in the cane fields, I think they were known as banji or something like that, B-A-N-J-I, something close to that. But they were fond, because they were working in the fields all day, they had to have food with them all day. But of course, you've got to have something that's going to maintain, it's, it's going to be edible throughout the entire day, it's going to retain some heat and so on. So bunny chow is, if you can imagine, a full unsliced loaf of bread where the interior's been scooped out and you've then got a bunch of whatever curry you like and you've poured it in there and then you've stopped up the end with the bread that you've already pulled out, that you pulled out previously. 
So it looks like yes. a single loaf of bread. And then you chomp into it, you've got this delicious hot curry filling, or it can be a vegetarian filling, whatever. That's bunny chow. And at the cricket ground, you can buy quarter, half, or full loaves, depending on how hungry you are. I think this is the greatest. I don't know why we aren't selling that at rugby league games. I think that's a wonderful idea. And actually, and they're not the only people who do it. A friend of mine was teaching in Tonga, and he said what the kid, the boys and the girls at school would do for lunch is they'd go and buy a loaf of bread, eat nice, soft, warm loaf of bread, eat the middle out of it, then get a mm. bottle of a soft drink, mm. a bit like Fanta, but really glutinous and really mm. sweet, and pour it in. And then you ate the result. Uh, and he said... Wow, that's a variety of bunny chow, except a liquid, in liquid form. But he said... Think about the, the, what it contains and you'll understand why the Tongans charging across rug, rugby league fields are the size of a fridge. <laughs> I always liked, there was a debate a few years ago. We've wandered a bit off the sub- subject of uh, the Queen. I'll bring us back to that in a moment. I think in a way this is a celebration of empire and a celebration of all that, all that she mm. reigned over. But I remember we had, there was a debate several years ago about junior rugby league whether playing groups should be determined rather than by age like the under 12s under 13s and instead by weight because we had a lot of islander kids tong and so on and they were substantially larger for their age than a lot of other children and one very persuasive clip showed a large kid big islander boy and his team had obviously decided the way they were going to win was just, at all costs, get him the ball and then <laughs> yes. let him go. And he basically walked the length of the field with these other tiny children <laughs> hanging off him like limp to a ship's hull. And then when he got to the touchline, he put the ball down and then very gently just detached these children and put them down on their feet. And he was the epitome of a gentle giant. He wasn't using his size advantage because it was substantial. He wasn't using it to cause any damage at all. He was merely using it as a competitive device. But yeah, the delicacy with which he was putting these kids down, he didn't want to, he wasn't thrashing them off or trying to kick them away. He was just like, <laughs> down. And it was like, it was brilliant. That guy has been on the yes. bunny chow, I reckon. It's given him the speed and yes. the mass that he needs. I agree. Well, guys, I reckon we've probably talked long enough unless there's anything else on the agenda. I think we played tribute to Her Majesty and we wished... King Charles III, all the best. And I think we it's fair to say out of a sense of dignity, we have pulled our punches a little bit on the lunatics on the left. We're probably keen to get back into that next week. What do you think? Just in the hour or so we've been talking, can you imagine what's gone down on lines just while we've been chatting away? It, it's going to be a sewer when we click back in there just to see what... When they started at a fairly low level. Let's see how further they can go. Let's see how further they can dive. Yep. There, there are people there helping us support the monarchy, people like Meghan. Mm-hmm. Meghan Markle is working yep. hard for us to think really highly of the monarchy. Absolutely. We need to be grateful for that. Indeed. And Matt Thistlewaite is doing his bit too. Marvellous, marvellous, marvellous. OK, guys, I think that's it. You can email us at nick at theswill.com.au. Don't forget, the five-star thing is not just pretty. It actually works in pushing us up the rankings and getting more people to listen and enjoy the show it's too good to keep to yourselves thanks guys we'll chat again next week and god bless him god bless his majesty the king indeed indeed talk to you next time by the death of our late sovereign of happy memory 
become our only lawful and rightful liege lord, Charles III. By the grace of God, of the United Kingdom, of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of his other realms and territories, King, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith, to whom we do acknowledge